miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast today. Coming up, the kids are not all right. Yeah, the COVID slide's real, and now we're starting to get the data showing the disruptions to our kids' educations, creating a lost generation of children who are less educated, less qualified for jobs, and will make less money because they have lost so much education and no one is making up for it. China launching a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile so advanced and ahead of its time, it went completely undetected by the U.S. military this summer, and that is why they're now sending a warning to the world. We'll talk about the threat, which apparently is bigger than we thought. And a court ruling involving three infamous Albertan anti-vaxxers will be celebrated by many, but it shouldn't be because the judge ordered that these men have to issue a discretion on their opinions. Now, when you are told what your opinions are, they're no longer an opinion. And that is a direct violation of our charter rights and freedom of speech. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Prime Minister Trudeau, leaders demonstrate their priorities through their actions. And then it's up to people to decide if what they see reflects their own values. With that in mind, what do your actions on September 30th say to Indigenous people in this country who are yearning for a leader who can move forward with meaningful reconciliation? Thank you. As I said, uh, I deeply regret not having been here to commemorate and to move forward uh, with the Kamloops Tisawet book. It is something um, that we need to commit ourselves to do better on every single day as a government and me as an individual. Oh, regrets, they're infinite. But Justin Trudeau's latest screw-up is not a we thing. It is a he thing. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, October 18th. Here we go into a fresh new week, five days long. Oh, yes, we're back at it. But there you go, the Prime Minister, late today, trying to reconcile his latest self-afflicted screw-up, and he looked irritated, if not outright uncomfortable. So he went out to BC, where he was meeting with Indigenous leaders who he had blown off, literally, National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Not once, twice. He went out to try to fix what he broke. But he didn't also schedule this meeting. This is important. The First Nation of Tecumseh-Squapam extended yet another olive branch to the Prime Minister, which obviously he had no choice but to take. So there were a few private meetings this morning, and then this afternoon he came out to face uh, the media where he used words like, um, regret. He'd wished he'd gone. Uh, we all have to do more. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I did my stuff. You guys did your stuff. This is not a we thing. This is a he thing, right? We all know he loves to turn his screw-ups into these learning moments for the rest of us. You know, whether it's blackface or the kokanee grope or dissing First Nations. It's always a we thing. But I did find it interesting I did find it interesting watching his body language because there he sat by Chief Roseanne Casimir and he literally looked like he wanted to crawl under the table. Like it was clear he did not want to be there. He did not enjoy the chief excoriating him for going on that surfing trip. And she didn't spare his feelings. Like she just went off. <laughs> I'll play you the comments in a minute. 
And she shouldn't. I mean, Trudeau needed to show up today. He needed to show up then, but he needed, of course, to show up today. He needed to show, you know, that he is committed. Because I think this thing is going to stick to him for a while. Unlike the other things that generally don't. I mean, this one's kind of like when you step in dog crap, you know, and it gets all up in your your brand new sneakers and all those nooks and crannies. And like, you know, no matter how much you wash it, it's just there. And it's like irritating. You can always smell it. That's how I kind of think this one will stick to him. And, you know, one thing Trudeau, well, you know, politicians never give direct answers, but one thing Trudeau was asked by David Aiken, which was a, I think a very telling comment, you know, he was asked, will you be dropping the lawsuits against compensating indigenous kids? And his answer was not lost on the many indigenous leaders looking for authenticity, looking for action, you know, and not words. They want action. They don't want words. And so, uh, We'll see if this rings hollow, you know, or, or whether or not Trudeau was able to set a new path for reconciliation with this particular um, atonement of his sins. So we'll talk about that in a few moments. Earlier in the day, I had been looking into, um, if you want to speak about hollow, uh, about this commitment or this promise that you really got to read the details, the fine print. And that is about a four-day four work week. Well, I, I'd love a four-day work week. I mean, who wouldn't? Especially after this pandemic, I would love that. But this is what leader Steve Del Duca, if he can get elected, he will look into making a four-day work week. Yeah, I think Not the bottom line do is we it. don't know for sure how it would work. We don't know if it'll... Like, I suspect there are parts of the economy where it would be really difficult from a scheduling perspective to go here quickly. But I think there are other parts of the economy where it might work well on a voluntary basis. Yeah, that's the whole thing. It would have to be a voluntary thing. But it's not even a promise. I mean, promises are easy. It's the delivery that's a problem. But I didn't hear an actual promise. And there's no question the pandemic has broken the mold on how, you know, workplaces work. We know that we can work from home. In many cases, we know that we can be just as productive, if not more. We know that we and we don't need everyone going into the office every day. So we know that things experts told us would take decades to do. We made happen overnight, right? But what makes for good politics doesn't always make for actual policy. So Del Duca is trying to get our attention and he will get lots of attention for this idea. Like I said, the devil is in the detail on these kinds of promises. And Del Duca is not actually promising a four-day work week if he gets election, but just that he will study it, you know. He'll run a pilot project to see if it works. And so, like, if he got elected on this stuff, we're talking years in the making. Despite the fact that data collected in other countries has shown it can be done. It can be done. It can be done without any pay or productivity loss. Uh, researchers in Iceland found that workers' well-being improved drastically, actually, with the extra day off. But we're not Iceland. We have different issues. But we're going, like, right now we're going through a major labor shortage. And, and this obviously would not solve that. But Del Duca does not have the power to mandate what private businesses do. And so there are a lot of Ontario businesses that are federally, federally regulated. And he could make this work in the public sector. He could do that. He's got the power to change rules for that sector. Hey, there's a lot of fat to trim there. He could cut the week to four days, remove a day pay, save us billions. 
But he won't do that because he won't do that to the voting base. So no one in the private sector should get all excited that we're about to get a long weekend if you vote the liberals back into power because ultimately individual businesses will decide. And there are a lot of businesses that don't have the kind of scheduling infrastructure to offer a short week. It would end up costing them more money to cover off ships, especially businesses that are open, unlike government, seven days a week. Especially if the business is unionized with a private union. So this isn't about good policy. It's about politics. And sure, this is smart politics. Going to get a lot of attention. But the important fine print is that it is a promise I don't think Del Duca can actually deliver on. The good news so far is that kids are in school. They seem to be thriving. And uh, let's hope they stay where they are. The bad news is the kids are not actually all right. And we have talked about the issue of COVID slide on the show a lot. And now we're starting to get the data on how damaging the loss of education is going to be to an entire generation of kids. And a study called The Lost Generation, How Pandemic School Closures and Remote Learning Threatened to Widen the Skills Gap reveals that, you know, even before COVID, employers were complaining about this growing divide in skills. And now with the prolonged disruptions to an entire generation, what we're going to see is that these kids are going to be further behind. They will never catch up. And this lost generation won't be as competitive. They won't make as much money. They won't have as many career choices. And 80% of Canadians are aware of this. 43% say we are not taking enough action to stem the damage. And they are not. The public school system is just pushing kids through whether they're ready or not. Bruce Hine is a franchise owner of Express Employment Professionals in Sarnia. They did this study and gathered the data. He joins us now. Good to have you, Bruce. Great to be here. We know, and I know I've talked about it for months on this show, about the loss of learning for kids. And the conversation that we never seem to hear, albeit I hear it from parents in the playground, is the loss of education to the kids and the fact that they're just going through now. There was never a stop to, hey, let's review the year, let's redo the year. It was just kind of push the kids through and we'll see what we can do. Am I correct? Yeah, and we're seeing it uh, certainly on our local level um, where uh, young adults that have been through the system already um, are having a difficult time uh, emotionally and uh, mm -hmm. with the skill set, coping with the demands of, uh, of uh, their employers today. Is there a particular age we're talking about, or is it right across, um, you know, the, the the grade divide? Well, I think certainly our baby boomers, uh, we've long since been through the system and have developed our good or bad habits. But uh, uh, as we get into uh, millennials and uh, Gen X, uh, uh, some of those people are, are reevaluating their world because of the pandemic. But uh, more importantly, uh, we're finding um, that age group in the 20s, early 30s, they're really struggling. And as soon as they're told your work is not up to standard, there seems to be a lot of anxiety that goes along with uh, hearing that. So uh, um, there's been a lot of talk amongst my uh, network of people, customers uh, who are, mm -hmm. are expressing concern that, Boy, we've got a lot of a lot of people that are getting into the workforce that uh, they're just not used to hearing. We need to improve. 
Right. In other words, all those years of giving, um, you know, a zero era, you know, not being allowed to give a zero and pushing the kids through is now being shown in the workforce where they don't get the participation ribbon maybe they were expecting. Here is the real world. And so then we've got this other generation coming up behind them of kids who have been completely disrupted. Every There's been no structure in their education, which is going to be even worse, is it not? Yeah, I, I, I mean, we're we're starting to see that. I, I can't uh, personally say. Uh, I think we're right at the front edge of, of that, mm-hmm. and what the fallout of that's going to be. So, uh, it, definitely a concern. Well, I, I know in our personal situation, we ended up having to pull our kid out um, because they weren't going to redo the curriculum. They were going to push them through, and we're now paying for an education that we can hardly afford. But again, a lot of parents are having to do that because we felt that it was crucial um, that he, being at a younger age, get the proper skills before we push him through, because what ends up happening, as you know, is they just keep falling further and further and further behind. But again, we're not hearing any conversation from the school system as to how we're going to continue to, to undo the damage as these kids go along. Well, I think the great experiment uh, where we just never let anybody fail and, uh, you know, when they played sports, we never kept score. We're starting to reap those uh, those uh, challenges that come from that. So uh, very concerned about uh, people learning to compete and learning that there's winners and losers in life sometimes. And uh, what do I do to become a winner? I just pick up my bootstraps and, and try harder. Yeah, uh, but that's been going on for a while now. So we're talking like uh, 20 years worth of kids who have really kind of been coddled. I mean, we we called them, I think, snowflakes. Um, And you don't want to disparage a whole generation of kids, but there really are a a completely different set of rules for younger generations that did go through this, you know, don't be too disciplined. No one's ever wrong. Everyone's got to be fair. Everyone wins. You know, uh, that has been going on for a long time. Are you starting to see a swing back to that yeah, I, I, well, I, I don't know if we've ever, uh, we've ever left that m- mindset that uh, that uh, everybody just moves along. Uh, we're certainly see it. We, we place in this market. We put people to work that are uh, varied skill sets. And to be honest with you, it's not just the skill set that uh, is require uh, the criteria or the challenge. Uh, very often, it's uh, it's it's the demographic that uh, just doesn't want to apply themselves. You know, work is work, and uh, hopefully we can all find work that's enjoyable, but uh, at the end of the day, work is still work. And it might not necessarily be the very first thing you get into. Eventually, you might get there, but you have to put in the hard work uh, to begin. What is the biggest threat that you're seeing? Like, where is the biggest skill um, set that is missing? We laugh about it uh, um, sort of in, in the office here where we say, you know, just showing up every day is, is a skill set. So um, if we can get people to show up for work to put a, to want to put an honest base uh, effort into the work itself and go home feeling like, okay, I contributed to my employer. I, I earned my wages today uh, as opposed to not showing up for work or leaving work at noon. Uh, people might be surprised to hear that, that that goes on in the world, but uh, it happens all the time. I shouldn't laugh. I mean, that's pathetic because you can't just show up. You actually have to be productive. And as you know, the work model has changed. People are working from home. We're talking about four-day work days. You know, people are adjusting to a new kind of workforce. But if you can't get them even motivated once they've shown up, let alone getting them to show up, uh, it doesn't bode well. Yeah. 
Well, we've we've even gone to uh, incentivizing people to show up for uh, assignments. So we give them a bonus if they work after they work so many hours. Uh, we're just trying anything we can to get people who want to go to go to work and and get them rewarded. So um, so we can meet the needs of the businesses in our market. But there, but that's not s- sustainable. I mean, uh, businesses and small businesses, which have been hit so so badly and so hard during this. Um, you know, pandemic are, are, you know, already short staff. They can't hire, certainly in the hospitality sector. But this is not sustainable for small businesses to try to give incentives and extra bonuses when they're already having a hard time meeting margins and bottom lines. Well, there's also a lot of pressure on wages. Um, you mentioned uh, the service industry. They're looking at their wage structures and, and can they offer benefits? I mean, these for, for people that work in those industries, that's a good thing. Uh, that they mm-hmm. can start to get better wa- better wages and uh, and some benefits that go along the way, but um, it does put pressure. So now you're paying a lot more uh, for a hamburger and a meal and uh, at the mm-hmm. gas pumps. I mean, we're all paying more for things. So as uh, as goes inflation, everything else will go up accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, and energy and all the rest of it. We're in for, I think, some really tough times, which is going to then make the market even more competitive and the skill set you need to kind of you know, put yourself apart from the rest is going to really factor in. And so, Bruce, what what is, you know, the long-term trend or what are you seeing and what are the warnings that we need to know or how do we turn this around? Well, I think I think it has to start early on uh, where we start making students uh, through the system accountable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we have uh, a son that we raised, and if the deadline was uh, next Tuesday for an assignment, he got his assignment in on that date, not two weeks later. Uh, right. We tried to work very hard, my wife and I, to set him up for success later on in life by teaching him that there are things that you have to do in life and uh, to meet the needs of society. And one of them is uh, meet the commitments. In other words... Time to bring back the strap, or those were my well, days. I, uh, wouldn't I, go, to... <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but but I would say that we have to hold people accountable. It's tough in today's world. I get it. Um, sure. Um, you know, not every household has two parents, and uh, mm-hmm. and that support that goes along with that. Some, you know, working mothers and single dads out there are, are having a tough time, and uh, they don't always maybe have the uh, freedom to pay the pay the time that's needed for their children and their education. But uh, boy, it sure pays dividends in the end if we, if we can start them off on the right foot. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, and I think a lot of people do. But nonetheless, we'll keep an eye on this one. Appreciate you joining, with, uh, joining me with this and uh, kind of bringing some insight into, I think, what m- most people would say is just kind of common sense. But I appreciate it. Not a problem. That is Bruce Hain, who's a franchise owner of Express Employment Professionals in Sarnia. And so, yeah, little tough love never hurts anybody. Um, again, reality is a tough life. Uh, the real world, it's a real place. Got to get the kids ready for it. So while we were sleeping tucked in our beds back in August, China was up to some very naughty behavior. U.S. military is now warning that China tested what they believe to be a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile that circled the Earth and narrowly missed the target. What that target is, I don't know. But China claims, of course, this was all just research for space travel, but what is, I think, especially troubling about this development is the U.S. military experts 
they don't know how often these weapons have been launched because they're designed to avoid detection of the U.S. missiles defense systems, which are designed to destroy incoming ballistic missiles. So in other words, China has expedited an astounding amount of progress on a nuclear weapon that is far more advanced than America can defend against because it caught America's military totally by surprise and they have no idea how China managed to do this. Marcus Kolga becoming a very big regular on this show, senior fellow over at McDonald Laurier Institute, founder of DisinfoWatch, and just happens to be an expert on all things Russia, China, and areas of the Indo-Pacific. Good to have you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on, Alex. So I sent you this and said, uh, what? And I think your response was terrifying. What? what? This is so capable. I guess the Russia and China and the United States are all developing this kind of military weaponry, but apparently China is way ahead of the game. Yeah, the U.S. is also has been developing similar type of technology for the past number of years. But um, you know, the latest reports are that it's uh, at least ten years behind China at this point. Uh, you mm-hmm. you know, developing this hypersonic technology, which, as you mentioned, I mean, this is. This is scary stuff. Um, these are missiles that are launched either via rocket or, as the Russians do, they they launch them off of uh, you know airborne bombers. And these uh, these these missiles, guided missiles, so, so to speak, fly at ten times the speed of sound. They are they can maneuver, unlike a, a typical uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, which goes sort of straight up in the air and then comes straight down. Um, this mm-hmm. one can zigzag and do loops, and uh, as you say evade U.S. Uh, NATO radars and and hit targets without us uh, ever seeing them or ever having a chance to shoot them down. So it's, yeah, it's really, really scary stuff. Well, it is. And, and it's, I, I don't know, like, how did they find out about this, um, that this was happening? Uh, is this someone like a whistleblower came forward? Because, um, you know, to have a weapon that sophisticated that can go uh, completely unnoticed. I mean, it's it's not just a game changer, but but the the U.S. would be wiped off the map if it were an actual threat. Well, along with a lot of other weapons that the the Russians and the uh, the Chinese government are are deploying. Um, how they find out how they found out about this, the U.S. That is is, is a good question. And, you know, it could be a, any number of intelligence sources, whether in China or. Elsewhere, uh, partners in the Indo-Pacific region who may have detected the launch. Um, initially, what uh, the stuff that we know publicly is, you know, open source intelligence is that uh, China always announces they're very proud of their their space launches, and uh, and so in July there's a very public Twitter-based record of them launching the uh, 77th. Uh, rocket into space. And then suddenly in the middle of August, there was an announcement that they had launched the 79th rocket, which led, I guess, a lot mm. of intelligence people in the intelligence community to say, what happened to rocket number 78? And um, I'm sure that, uh, again, through the you know various partners and such, they figured out that there was, sure, certainly was a, a launch on uh, number 78. And, uh, and I guess information, perhaps the Chinese also wanted to leak this information out to um, to, you know, uh, provoke this sort of a discussion that we're having right now about, uh, about China's strength. So who knows how they, they, uh, how they found out. But, um, you know, I think that uh, this discovery, uh, along with a lot of the other uh, stuff that China and Russia are doing right now in, in terms of weapons development and super, creating super weapons, um, mm. it should be, uh, you know, it should be setting off alarms in, in Washington and, and Ottawa as well. 
Well, I'm sure no one in Ottawa is even paying attention. I've, I've given up hope on that. I'm sure the uh, Americans are, but, you know, it could also be a, a warning maybe to allied ships that are in the Indo-Pacific right now trying to give some kind of defense to Taiwan. But, you know, the, the challenge, and, and America has a few right now, um, you know, the, the missile defense system is generally focused up at the northern polar route. But what this right. does is completely throws that off because, as you say, this thing can go all over the place. It's like a, you know, it's like a cat, game of cat and mouse, but the cat is way faster. And so what does America do? Um, you know, like, how does this then change our allied uh, response to China? Well, and this could be one one uh, reason why the U.S. is working with Australia to create this new defense alliance. You're absolutely right. This, what, uh, what, how this is really a, a game changer uh, with regards to you know NATO and, and North American defense is that uh, traditional missiles, whether they're ICBMs or others, um, they traditionally fly over the North Pole because that's the shortest route. Um, mm-hmm. between Russia and Asia between and, and North America. This hypersonic missile apparently will take the southern polar route, which is relatively, if not completely, undefended uh, other than Australia. Um, but we, there's no missile defense there. there. There's very little radar capabilities. And so in addition to being able to maneuver to uh, evade radar detection, it's, uh, it's going through an area of the world that we just don't keep an eye on. So, so mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's quite concerning, for certainly for uh, Russian or U.S. military planners. Well, certainly, guys. We already know that Russia is doing this game. We already know that Russia has moved in, as we've talked about, you know, uh, the you know, very sophisticated military operations in in the Arctic and and apparently Canada. It's so bad, though, Marcus, that that the UK have kind of said, Canada, do you want our subs over there? And, and I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Um, but you know, China's not bound by any arms control deals, and so they don't have to approve anything or tell anybody what they're doing. I feel like we're so in the dark about these threats that not just China, uh, but Russia, and then. Of course, Iran are, are um, you know, coming together and, and threatening us with that. We are just way in the dark or way back behind the eight ball. Well, we're I think we're, it's a combination of these. Uh, you know, we're, we're just we're not paying attention. We have our heads stuck in the sand. You know, I think the Canadian reaction is to believe that we can talk to these regimes and they'll listen to us mm. and they'll back, you know, they'll, they'll step back if we just talk to them. You know, the fact is, is that China, in addition to the hypersonic missile, has over the past couple of years built 200 new intercontinental continental ballistic missile silos. Um, you know, the Russians, they just launched in July, they, they launched their own hypersonic missile, um, and they've created a, a doomsday torpedo. This is a nuclear-tipped torpedo that travels extremely quickly, almost the, the same speed as a, you know, a slower aircraft, underwater, and the the point of this torpedo is not to, is not tactical or strategic to to sink any sort of boat, but to completely irradiate hundreds of miles of uh, thousands of miles of coastline and create uh, these these nuclear tsunamis that are supposed to you know basically take out all life in vast swaths of, of area. So you know this is um, it's pretty terrifying stuff. And the fact also that the Russians have have uh, built up. Um, several dozen new bases in the Arctic, the closest of which is on Franz Josef Land in the far north of, of Russia. And it's basically the same distance as, as, as Toronto is from Halifax, from Canada's border. Mm-hmm. There's this massive mm-hmm. buildup that's happening. And we haven't done any sort of engaged in any sort of significant planning to defend ourselves against these new capabilities and what are clearly new threats uh, to, uh, to our sovereignty and that of our, our, our allies. So we need to take our heads out of the sand and, and really start paying attention 
and developing some capabilities to push back on this. Yeah, well, you would think, but no, people just don't care about the Arctic because they don't see the bigger threat at play. They just kind of look at it as a race for uh, minerals and, and wealth and oil, but it's a whole lot uh, it's a whole lot wider than just that. But nonetheless, it's an interesting headline. We'll certainly keep following up on it. Thanks uh, for joining me, Marcus. Appreciate it. Anytime, Alex. Marcus Kolga, who watches this stuff, he's also a senior fellow over at McDonald Laurier Institute. So we will keep an eye on that because apparently uh, we need to. Right. Obviously, the issue of anti-vaxxers is a very thorny issue. It is a very emotional issue. And you may not like what they say, but they do have a right to say it. Or they did. Uh, There was an important court ruling that came down in Alberta that most people would have missed. And the judge in this case was dealing with three very well-known anti-vaxxers who have been making headlines for months because of their views. And also because... They have defied several court orders holding huge anti-mask events where they then, you know, give their opinions. So they have violated court orders. But instead of jailing the men or punishing them, the judge ordered that these men must now include a disclaimer when they talk about their anti-vax views. That their views conflict with science and the medical community. And you may not say, well, big deal. But when you actually tell someone what their opinion is, no matter who it is, then it's not an opinion. This is what we call compelled speech, which is also suppressing free speech. And it is a direct violation of our charter. I want to bring Ryan O'Connor into this conversation, partner over at Toronto-based Zayuna Law Firm. Good to have you, Ryan. Good to be with you again, Alex. So this ruling caught my eye, and I think, you know, while a lot of people would just celebrate this judge and, you know, kind of be blinded by their hate for the anti-vax movement, uh, the reason I kind of tapped into this, because, you know, we cannot like someone's opinion, that's fine, turn it off, but when you get a judge actually compelling someone of what they have to say, that is the kind of thing... Um, And a Supreme Court justice, actually, uh, Gene Beats, wrote back in 1984 in a different ruling, quote, must prohibit compelling anyone to utter opinions that are not their own. To do so otherwise is a totalitarian and as such alien to the tradition of free nations like Canada. And so the, the judges have said already before, we cannot compel people what to say. And yet this judge is. Well, you're quite right, Alex. The Supreme Court has been fairly clear in numerous decisions about um, the question of compelled speech. You're quite right that Justice Betts said early in the 1980s that compelled speech is uh, totalitarian, and that's been repeated in other decisions. But you don't have to condone the behavior of these individuals who are protesting and and preaching about um, uh, vaccinations and not wearing masks and breaching public health orders. You don't need to agree with that to still uh, defend the right of those individuals to uh, preach what they wish and to say what they wish. This court decision is, is highly unusual. Uh, it, it's mm-hmm. akin to, uh, you know, the government or the courts that forcing a priest or rabbi or an imam at a religious service to allow them to spend the first half of the religious service preaching their faith and then having the second half of the service being a promotion of atheism. Uh, I think uh, most reasonable people would think that that was objectionable, and that's effectively uh, what we've seen um, in terms of the result of this decision. Or it would be like uh, doing talk radio and having someone come into every segment I do or someone else does and say, hey, now let's talk about this, or this is a, you know, it wouldn't be my opinion anymore. There would be a completely different side of things that 
don't really have anything to do with I said. And so I think a lot of people will look at this as well. Hey, if they're spreading misinformation, it's dangerous. Therefore, we need to stop people from doing this. And okay, on the surface, sure. But my concern is that the fact that the judge in this case wouldn't have known what has already been dealt with in the upper courts of this country and seemed pretty clear and went ahead and did it anyway. Well, and what's interesting in this case is the judge had a suggested script for when these individuals were uh, preaching their views, the, the script um, that he uh, wanted uh, these individuals to state with respect to the, um, the, the science. He stated that uh, they should say that medical experts support uh, social distancing and support vaccine programs. But if you look at the course of the pandemic over the last 19 months, Alex, the, the science has changed. Even public health officials have said it. Uh, has changed. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told it was okay to travel, that uh, closing the borders would do uh, absolutely nothing to contain viral spread. And then a few weeks after that, in March 2020, uh, the borders were closed. Masking was not mandatory at the beginning of the pandemic. Public health officials said it would be ineffective in terms of, uh, you know, preventing the transmission of the virus causing COVID. And what happened by the middle of 2020, we had mass mandates in several jurisdictions uh, in this province and ultimately province-wide and now throughout Canada. So we know that the science with respect to COVID is changing. And it's not, with all due respect to the court, not for the court to say that at this time, these individuals need to be um, uh, promoting whatever public health officials say at the time. There's no universal perspective on COVID in terms of public health because public health officials themselves have said that, that the science has changed, the perspective yeah. on restrictions have changed. Yeah, I think you raise an excellent point. It would almost be like, you know, we get all sorts of people down in Dundas Square in downtown Toronto preaching whatever it is they preach, their religion, whatever it is that they believe. It would be like telling them you can't do this here anymore. And, and whether you like it or not, they, they can do that. But I just think we get this slippery slope where people say it's just the pandemic. Once that's gone, things will get back to normal. I don't think people realize that once your civil liberties actually start to slip away, they don't come back. Well, that's been the issue of the pandemic. Look, our our, our uh, freedom of speech is protected under the Charter, but it's not to protect majority speech. Um, the bulk of individuals in this country support vaccination. The proof is in the pudding. Fully four-fifths of Canadians who are eligible have been vaccinated. So vaccination has wide support in this country and support in the medical community. But freedom of speech exists to protect speech, which is unpopular. That's why it's constitutionalized. Yeah. Majority speech doesn't need to be protected because most people believe in it. So uh, these individuals, their, their speech may be objected to, it may be discreditable, but uh, they have just as much a charter right to uh, disseminate their beliefs uh, as everyone else. And we're a poor society for it when we're all required to say the same thing, all required to think the same thing, and there's no diversity of viewpoints, particularly with respect to uh, COVID measures and rules, because there is a diversity of opinion, even in the medical community and certainly in the broader community and amongst jurisdictions in Canada about the appropriate approach to deal with the pandemic. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating case, and I think people should, before they celebrate, just take kind of a step back and say, okay, it's anti-vaxxers today, but tomorrow it could be me or you or somebody else. And so therefore, um, you want to nip that in the bud. Ryan, appreciate your time always. And we'll uh, see where this one goes. And if these three guys get back into the court system again, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Good to be with you again, Alex. Thank you. That is Ryan O'Connor, who is with Zayuna uh, Law Firm, and he's been dealing with a lot of these cases. But again, take your emotion out of this and realize um, <laughs> When you're starting to make decisions like this that go against other upper court uh, decisions, you know, like we don't want activists on the bench. That's what this kind of 
reads to me. Don't want activist judges. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting at 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.